Hiring? With Indeed, your search is over. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash match. Just go to Indeed.com slash match right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash match. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Covey blue blood flowing through our veins. Sitting in the bleachers in the rain. We've shed a million tears and drank as many old style beers out at the game. Let's go, Cubby Sun Rento, Sun Rento, Sun Rento and the love of Lucier. Sun Rento, Sun Rento, Sun Rento and the love of Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Sun Ranto Show. I am Danny Rocket, and um, uh, we have a very special guest today for a, a very special uh, Sun Ranto Show in which uh, Bob Kendrick, who is the president of the Negro League Museum located in Kansas City, Missouri, has uh, agreed to come on and kind of talk about and to add to what we've been talking about on the podcast with reading Only the Ball Was White, which was actually... Bob's su- suggestion that we read this book to educate ourselves. And, uh, well, without further ado, thanks for coming on the show, Bob. I really appreciate it. Oh, man, it is my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, and happy holidays to you. Yeah, you too. Yeah, I, I, I was thinking of even releasing this on Christmas as a Christmas present to everybody. So we'll see. But, uh, yeah, uh, well, first let me just uh, say I've never been to the Negro League Museum and I would love to go. Uh, I didn't really even know about it until I saw your Twitter. Uh, so can you just give us a quick introduction as to what the Negro League Museum is and, you know, how big is it? What's the history of of the museum? Yeah, absolutely. It's the world's only museum solely dedicated to preserving and celebrating the rich history of African-American baseball and its profound impact on the social advancement of America we tell this story through a wonderful collection of photographs, artifacts, great descriptive pieces. It is a nostalgic journey through time. And so not only do you trace the rise and subsequent fall of the Negro Leagues, but you're also able to witness how America progressed socially at the same time. And, of course, along this journey, you're going to meet some of the greatest baseball players to ever put on a baseball uniform. Our current main gallery is about 10,000 square feet of space, and the museum, believe it or not, operates just two blocks away from the old Paseo YMCA, which is the birthplace of the Negro Leagues. That's where Andrew Roop Foster organized the Negro Leagues in Kansas City in a meeting that took place on, on February 13, 1920. And so the museum is rightfully in Kansas City because Kansas City is the birthplace of this incredible piece of baseball and Americana. Uh, and so it really is a fascinating 
journey back in time. I think for the thousands of visitors who come to see us on an annual basis, I think they come here now expecting to meet some pretty good baseball players. They leave certainly not being disappointed. You're obviously going to meet some of the greatest baseball players ever. But by the time you walk away from this experience, you walk away with what I believe to be an even greater appreciation for just how great this country really is. Because, Danny, the story of the Negro Leagues could have only happened in America. So, yes, it is anchored in the ugliness of American segregation, a horrible chapter in this country's history. But what makes this story so special is that out of segregation rose this wonderful story of triumph and conquest, and is all based on one simple principle. You won't let me play with you, and I just create a league of my own. And that league would rise to rival, and in many cities across this great country of ours, surpass Major League Baseball in popularity and in attendance. And that's what makes it such an awe-inspiring story. Yeah, and uh, I mean, I agree with that. I didn't know much about uh, the Negro Leagues at the time, but reading only The Ball Was White, uh, one thing that really kind of stuck out to me was uh the well the barnstorming which i know the both white and black and cuban and uh hispanic players all did uh barnstorming tours but when you see the places that they barnstormed especially in the winter cuba mexico the dominican republic um i was wondering if you could talk about how uh, those ball players uh, kind of created the winter leagues, possibly even the minor leagues that we know today, because it seems like a lot of the towns and the whistle stops that they used to go to bringing baseball in its infancy have become baseball towns for either, you know, minor league or, as I said, like the winter leagues. Um, could you talk well, a little and, bit about that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And you're, and you're absolutely right. And, and the Negro Leaguers were heralded barnstormers. Now, for those who may be listening who are not familiar with that term, in this baseball context, it simply meant that they were taking baseball into towns that had not seen professional baseball. And I think it's important that your listeners understand that during that era of both the Negro Leagues and Major Leagues, Kansas City was as far west as the Negro organized Negro Leagues went. St. Louis was as far west as Major League Baseball went in that era. So if you lived on the western foremost half of the country, you didn't get to experience professional baseball unless it was through barnstorming. And again, the Negro Leaguers were tremendous barnstormers. They took baseball into Canada. They were often, as you kind of preface, they were oftentimes the first Americans to play in many Spanish-speaking countries. And, Danny, your listeners will likely be surprised to learn that it was a touring team of Negro Leaguers who actually introduced professional baseball to the Japanese going all the way back to 1927. Now, this is years before Ruth and his All-Stars go to Japan. They had been commonly credited with having taken professional baseball to the Japanese, but it was not true. It was a team called the Philadelphia Royal Giants who would go to Japan in 1927, play a 24-game exhibition series. They go 23-0-1 on the tour. The tour was so successful that several years later, Ruth and his All-Stars would uh, receive that invitation to come over to Japan. The Japanese had been playing baseball, but they had not seen professional baseball until 1927 when the Philadelphia Royal Giants go over and coincidentally, the Philadelphia Royal Giants had two future Hall of Famers on that barnstorming team in Raleigh Biz Mackey, who taught the great Roy Campanella how to catch, and the great pitcher Andy Cooper, both are in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. And so when we talk about 
baseball in its global perspective, its global context. And, and as we know today, the major leagues are filled with ethnicities from around the globe. In essence, it was the Negro Leagues that helped make it the global game that it is today. And as I share with our visitors, the Negro Leagues, man, they didn't care what color you were. All they cared was, can you play? You know what I mean? <laughs> and if you can play, then you can play. And they had such great influence around the globe on the game of baseball. Yeah, I, I found that interesting, too. And stuff I didn't know in the book was that really before – it almost felt like, you know, as the Jim Crow laws calcified, uh, creating the kind of um, U.S.'s apartheid system of baseball, um, that bef- in professional baseball, before Jackie Robinson, there were players that actually played on mixed semi-pro teams and pro teams before, um, r- well before Jackie Robinson. So I was wondering if you could talk about some of those players that, uh, oh, you know, we we go back to where we believe the origin begins, and, and that may have been, and I say because we start with Moses Fleetwood Walker, right, who was the first known black to play on a all-white, what would have been considered a major league team at that time. This goes back to the late 1800s, around 1883 or so. Moses Fleetwood Walker was of darker skin, and, and Moses Fleetwood Walker was a barehanded catcher. Now, we say known black because there may have been other very light-skinned blacks who had snuck on teams well before then, but could either pass themselves off as being white Cuban uh, or being so light-skinned that they could pass themselves off as being white and, and, and maybe never got discovered. You know, So that's one of the reasons that we do preface that the fact that Fleetwood Walker was a known black. And, of course, it didn't last long before guys like Adrian Cap Anson, there in your town, uh, led what we now know to be a gentleman's agreement that would ultimately ban blacks from playing on white professional teams, or what we now refer to as the major leagues. And, and so basically they were saying, we're doing this for his own good. We don't want anything to happen to him. But amazingly, there was no verbalized, I mean, there was no written doctrination. It was just a verbalized agreement amongst players, managers, and owners that would eventually ban blacks from playing on those white teams until Jackie breaks the color barrier some nearly six decades later that Moses Fleetwood Walker and a handful of other guys had certainly been involved with organized baseball even prior to Jackie. But Jackie holds that distinction of being the first from what we deem to be the modern era of Major League Baseball. Yeah, and I know that uh, a guy named Charlie Grant, it, this story was uh-huh. in, the, in the book about how John McGraw, the famous uh, New York Giants manager, tried to pass Charlie Grant off as a Native American named Tokohama. Yeah. And just because, and so obviously there were many white players, even though that color line was, you know, kind of calcifying um, around the turn of the century as as Jim Crow became, I guess, the law of the land, especially in the South. But um, but there were many white managers that would have given their eye teeth just to have some of these players that were playing on um, uh, either Negro League teams or semi-pro teams. Um, and, and, oh, and, yeah. and, and you know, and you, you mentioned John McGraw, and of course, it was the great John McGraw who, believe it or not, brought Rube Foster into his camp so that Rube Foster could teach Christy Matheson 
how to throw the screwball. See, Ruth Foster, many believe that Ruth Foster, who lived and died there in Chicago, owner of the Chicago American Giants, managed the Chicago American Giants. They've been a great player in the early era of black baseball before he helped establish the Negro Leagues here in Kansas City in 1920. Well, many consider the fact that Ruth Foster invented what we now know to be the screwball. Back then, Danny was called a fadeaway. And so McGraw brings Foster into his camp to teach Christy Matheson how to throw the screwball. Christy Matheson threw it all the way into the National Baseball Hall of Fame with a pitch he learned from Rube Foster. And and I was wondering if you could talk more about Rube Foster because what an impresario. I, I'm trying to find the uh, passage in the book as we speak, but, I mean, I basically they, they describe him as if you took John McGraw and mixed him with Christy Matthewson, I mean, if, if, it's almost like if you took George Steinbrenner and his prowess as an owner yep. and and mixed him with Cy Young and, and yep. you know, and then mixed him with, uh, I don't know, George Keensaw Mountain Landis or somebody like that, you know. <laughs> I mean, he was, as, uh, you know, the Negro Leagues formed, he was pretty solely responsible for I guess uh, the consistency for the for I, yeah. I mean maybe I'm not putting it right, but it seemed like there were a lot of teams that would kind of start and fail sometimes within the year, and then Rube Foster, when under his uh, kind of tutelage, uh, and he basically made the Negro Leagues what they were oh, yeah. for a good period of time. I, I think when we look at those who have had the most influence on the game of baseball. I don't know if anybody ranks above Rube Foster. Of course, most people won't know who the heck Rube Foster is. But Rube Foster did everything you could possibly do in the game of baseball. As we touched on, he had been a great player in the pre-era of black baseball, earned his nickname Rube when he beat the legendary Major League of Rube Waddell in a head-to-head matchup as a youngster. He was nicknamed Rube, and he was Rube until the day he died there uh, just outside of Chicago. But he was such, obviously, a visionary. He is likely the greatest baseball mind this sport has ever seen. And, again, nobody knows anything about him, even though he is rightfully in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. Rube Foster, Danny, was known to fine his ball players as much as $5 if they were tagged out standing up, you were supposed to slide. <laughs> you know, Rue would draw a circle on the first baseline and a circle on the third baseline, and if every one of his players couldn't drop a butt inside that circle, he would find them. Because he was adamant about the style of play that became signature Negro Leagues baseball. Very fast, very aggressive, very daring. So they'd bump their way on. They steal second, they steal third, and if you weren't too smart, they steal home. And, and it was a much faster paced, exciting brand of baseball. You know, we kind of compared it to the way that our Kansas City Royals played this year. Right. That was Rube Foster baseball. You know, we won the World Series this year. We hit two home runs in the entire series. One of them was an inside-the-park home run. Yeah. Well, Rube Foster believed that if he put enough pressure on the defense, he could force them into mistakes and essentially manufacture a run almost every inning. Well, today they call it small ball. He had guys who could hit the ball out the ballpark, but all of his guys, could drop that butt, and and nearly the majority of them could steal you 40, 50 bases a year. And so it was a different brand of baseball that the major leagues really had not seen. 
And now you fast forward to 2015, the Royals were playing a different brand of baseball that baseball had moved away from. You know, and so it's hard for teams to talk about emulating what the Royals did because you have to have great athletes to play that way. Ruth Foster had a team of great athletes who could basically manufacture a run every inning. And it was just so exciting to see that style of play. Well, that, that's actually a question from a, a fellow podcast host, uh, Corey from the IVNV. It, it's another Cubs podcast. It's called the IVNV podcast. And he asked a question. He said, because I did um, ask for listener questions, and he asked are, if there are any styles or strategies that are in baseball now that uh, originated uh, in the Negro Leagues. And you yeah, say well, small you know, ball. And, and there's no question what the Royals did. And, and truth of the matter is they did more last year than they did this year, although in the World Series, they went back to playing that style. Yeah, and, and really, every time they made those big rallies against those teams and made those comebacks, it was because they kind of went away from trying to hit the ball out the ballpark right. and went back to being what they were, contact hitters, who, again, if they drew a walk, then it was a double. You know, when you got guys mm-hmm. that can run, yeah, you know, so a walk is a double. Right. And, and, you know, they could still, and when you can steal a base and everybody in the stadium know you're going to steal a base, you, you, you've got, you've got some guys that have some, have some wheels. And so the Royals certainly played that style of play over the last couple of years and been very successful, but they have a team of very, very good athletes on there who are also really good baseball players. And so when you, and it requires that, for you to be able to play that style. So every team is not equipped. Most teams were built to hit the ball out the ballpark because that's what people thought everybody wanted to see, the home run. So we move the fences in. We put these big, strong guys in the middle of the lineup. They hit the ball out the ballpark. Everybody's happy. Well, what we found is, and I think the reason that people fell in love with the Royals, is because they were playing this style of play that we had not seen before. You know, guys playing great defense. They can pitch the ball. They can catch it. You know, they can steal bases. You know, to see Lorenzo Cain score from first base on what looked like a single, you know, uh, mm-hmm. was as exciting as it gets. Or to see Eric Hosmer's brilliant base running to force that misplay at home plate to tie that game against the Mets, and then we go on and win the World Series. That was commonplace in the Negro Leagues. And, you know, you see a guy, as Buck O'Neill would say, the late, great Buck O'Neill, who spent many years there in Chicago with Chicago Cubs, uh, would say that in the Negro Leagues, the major leagues, you know, would accuse them of showboating if a guy went in the hole and flipped it behind his back to start the double play. Well, as Buck would say, it's only showboating when you can't do it. You know, <laughs> <laughs> today is a sports center top ten highlight. You know, all right. throughout the baseball season. But you know, and and so they made the game exciting. So you couldn't go to the concession stand because you might miss something you'd never seen before. Right. And uh, you know, I got a question actually from a listener. His name's Bearded Cubs fan, and um, I guess he's spoken with you before because when I tweeted out today that I was going to be talking with you, he said that I'm in for a treat. Um, Mr. Kendrick is an intelligent and captivating man. So, and uh, he's oh, right. Man, so- tell, him, tell him his check is in the mail. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's right so far. Um, he he had a question about Buck O'Neill. He wanted to know if. Uh, the impact that Buck O'Neill had on a young Ernie Banks, who was the first black player to play for the Cubs, 
and uh, and also you want to know your overall thoughts on the Cubs as well. Well, well, you know there is there's no denying Buck O'Neill's influence on Ernie Banks, on Lou Brock, on Billy Williams, all those guys that came up to the Cubs, George Altman, Gene Baker, all those guys who eventually make their way to the Cubs uh, through Buck O'Neill and that pipeline that was Buck O'Neill and the Chicago Cubs. Buck took Ernie on his wing. When Ernie came to Kansas City as a youngster, as a teenager, coming to Kansas City from Dallas, Texas, where the legendary Bill Blair, who the late Bill Blair, who played in the Negro Leagues, and Cool Papa Dale. Uh, Hall of Famer. Yes, Hall of Famer Cool Papa Dale saw Ernie playing softball in Dallas. Okay. You know, and, and, and Bill Blair, who took care of Ernie and put Ernie on the train and sent him to Kansas City. Well, Ernie came to Kansas City on the recommendation of Cool Papa Bell. Cool Papa Bell called Buck O'Neill, said, I got one here for you. And, and sight unseen, Buck O'Neill said, send him my way. And Ernie Banks comes to Kansas City. Buck O'Neill takes him under the wing. He was, a, believe it or not, a quiet, reserved kid. Didn't talk a whole lot. It's hard to believe after you got to know Ernie and, and, and how gregarious he was as a ball player once. Uh, things kind of took hold there in Chicago, mm-hmm. but very shy, very reserved. Buck O'Neill was like a father figure to Ernie Banks. He took him on his wing. He taught him how to be a pro. He taught him social skills. He taught him how to dress, everything. And, and, and Ernie would have told you the exact same thing. That's why all these guys love Buck so much, whether it's Ernie Banks, whether it's Lou Brock, George Altman, you know, Lee Smith, Joe Carter, all these guys that were part of the Buck O'Neill family. Um, of course, Billy Williams, who Buck O'Neill didn't sign, but Billy Williams will be the first to tell you that he owes his career to Buck O'Neill because Billy had quit the Cubs, went back home to Whistler, Alabama. Buck O'Neill went down to Whistler, Alabama and got him <laughs> and brought him back. You know, and, and, you know, so those stories are so endless as it relates to Buck O'Neill and the Chicago Cubs and the impact that he had on those African American ball players during that time that, uh, he was there with them. He knew the game of baseball. George Altman still says that Buck O'Neill was the greatest manager he ever played for. And George Altman played in the game for many, many years, Chicago, St. Louis, New York, as well as overseas in Japan. And he still says without hesitation that Buck O'Neill was the greatest manager he ever played for. Buck O'Neill could have been the very first black manager in Major League Baseball. And had the Cubs, who had that rotating coaching system, put him on the field, he would have been the first black manager in Major League Baseball history. Mm-hmm. Uh, as And he becomes the first black coach in Major League Baseball history in 1962 there with the Chicago Cubs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was I was wondering if he, if he ever made his round in the College of Coaches, if he ever yeah, got Yeah, when it. it got his turn, they didn't let him on the field. Oh, man. And, and, and Buck O'Neill, who was as, you know, outgoing and positive person uh, as I've ever met in my life, the few times that I've ever seen or heard him somewhat sullen is when he recalls the fact that the Cubs did not let him on the field. And I think had they let him on the field, he might not have gotten off the field. Buck O'Neill knew the game of baseball. He had great command over those players. He knew those players inside and out. He knew their strengths. He knew their weaknesses. They responded to him. And, uh, you know, and so, yeah, he was disappointed that he didn't get that opportunity, which is one of the reasons why Buck, I think, eventually went back to scouting as opposed to remaining a coach. Yeah. Um, now, it, 
he's uh, not one of the members of the Baseball Hall of Fame. There's 18 Negro League players that are, are in the hall. Um, there's a question from Lyle, one of uh, my fellow podcast hosts. He wants to know if there are any glaring omissions in the Hall of Fame, the the National Hall of Fame, in your opinion. Oh, man, we ain't got enough time. <laughs> you, know, uh, <laughs> you know, because it, it is that many. Uh, because the Hall has obviously gone back, and, and, and you know, when they had that – Big induction of uh, of 17 Negro Leaguers back in 2006, and Buck was on that list and, and sadly missed by one vote. There again in Chicago, the late great Minnie Minoso was on that list and missed as well and didn't get in. And I certainly believe that Minnie Minoso should be in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. He was essentially the Latino Jackie Robinson. Mm-hmm. Uh, what he did for the Hispanic ball player, the Spanish-speaking ball player, uh, is is as historic as it was with Robinson breaking the color barrier. Uh, but then there are no, another Chicagoan who I absolutely believe should be in. It's the late, great Ted Double Duty Radcliffe. Ted Double Duty Radcliffe did everything you could do. He did it in entertaining fashion. He caught, he pitched, he managed, he barnstormed, he, you know, he, he did it all. Yeah, I think Ted Double Duty Radcliffe certainly deserved strong consideration for guys like James Donaldson. Um, oh, there, there are a host of others who I think you could make a strong case for their deserving to be in the National Baseball Hall of Fame, and particularly the early era black baseball players, because we kind of lose sight of those guys uh, to some extent because there's nobody left, you know, to remember them. Right, the, you know the guy, the Negro League players who are still around remember their contemporaries. The guys from the '40s, '30s, and '40s, and even few of them remember the guys from the '30s and, and now waning even into the '40s. So, but yeah, there there are definitely some guys who deserve to be there, uh, like someone like Home Run Johnson, or oh yeah, I mean you know that, yeah, I mean that that list just goes yeah, it really does. It, well, it, it's extensive. It's really cool. At the end of the book, Only the Ball Was White, there's the last, I'd say, 50 pages are just basically a position by position, uh, just player after player who probably deserves in, in the Hall of Fame, at least three yeah. or four at each position. So I think yeah. you could easily double the number from 18 probably next year. And you wouldn't get any complaints well, and, over and anybody that knew. To, you have to remember, and actually there are, with the induction of those 17, that now makes it 35 who are in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. And these are either players and or officials who are in the Hall of Fame. So okay. you have people like Effa Manley and Alex Pompez and those folks who didn't play, but they're in the National Baseball Hall of Fame for what they did uh, primarily during their baseball careers associated with the Negro Leagues. It does not include names like Ernie Banks, Hank Aaron, Willie Mays, Robert, um, oh, the great catcher, just Roy Campanella. Roy Campanella, yeah. include those guys. You know, those guys all come out of Negro Leagues as well. And, and so I hope that gives your listeners an indication of just how much talent was there in the Negro League. You know, when we start talking about guys who you know how successful they were at the major league level, when we start talking about Henry Aaron and Willie Mays, we're talking about two of the greatest major league baseball players of all time. Mm-hmm. They come out Negro League, and, and and again, you know, there'll be those who will argue with you until till the cows come home that as great as they were, 
there were other guys in Negro Leagues who were even better than they were, which is almost scary to think. I mean, when you start talking about that, might have been somebody better than Hank Aaron and Willie Mays. That that's frightening, you know. Josh Josh Gibson, for example, is always Josh called Gibson like is one of those names. Absolutely, the Black Absolutely. Babe Ruth, and and uh, yeah. it, I guess we'll never know. It, you know, if is if if they play in the same league, does Josh Gibson hit as many home runs as Babe Ruth does? We don't know, but we can be damn sure it's close. <laughs> you know, like oh, yeah. Yeah, and how fitting that we, we talked today on what would have been the 104th birthday of the legendary Josh Gibson. Yeah, I, I just right. saw that, that you tweeted out a really cool-looking uh, – it's, it's a painting, I guess, or a, a lithograph? Yeah, or? yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. And so today is his uh, – what what birthday? Would have, his 100, would have been his 104th birthday. Okay. So and then uh, that's actually one of the questions that I have. Uh, I mean, somebody asked about uh, what was um, uh, Josh Gibson. Uh, Lyle again from my podcast asked uh, if uh, Josh Gibson was better than Babe Ruth, but uh, he also wanted to know was Satchel Paige the greatest pitcher of all time? <laughs> Seems you know, to me and, like he might have been. And, and, yeah, and, and let me let me say this to begin. Our museum is really not about trying to make a determination on who was better than whom. What we do want to have happen is that these guys be included in the conversation when we talk about all-time greats. Mm-hmm. But let me say this. I don't know if there was a player better than Josh Gibson. Uh, because when you look at what Gibson was able to do, both the power, get for average, and he was a great catcher. He wasn't a good catcher. He was a great catcher. A great, yeah, well, that's, so we're that's yeah. the first thing yeah. people said about him was what an awesome catcher he was. The hitting yeah, yeah, was yeah, almost an afterthought. Arm and, and, and Buck said he had great control of his pitching staff. He had the strong arm. He was throwing guys out from the crotch. And, you know, he hit for power. He hit for average lifetime batting average of 354 in head-to-head competition against major leaguers. He, you know, hit over 400. Catchers don't do that. No. You know, so you, there, there's nobody really to compare Gibson to when we talk about a catcher having that kind of impact on the game the way that he did. And, and mind you, Gibson hit everywhere he played, whether it was in the Negro Leagues, whether it was in Cuba, Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico. It didn't matter if he had a bat in his hand. <laughs> you better watch out. His teams always won. And so his impact on the game is incredible. He would have hit home runs in any league, in any era, had he been given the opportunity to do so. Now, Satchel, again, arguably the greatest pitcher this sport has ever seen. Mm-hmm. When we when we just look at what he accomplished, if you believe that he was born in 1906, which I don't believe, but let's just say for the, for the, for for the sake of this show, he was born in 1906. He's 42 years old when he gets to the major leagues. He goes six and one his first year in the major leagues with a 2.4 ERA. Cleveland wins the World Series in 1948. Many thought Satchel should have been named Rookie of the Year. He was likely closer to 52 than he was 42, and he was still winning. And you have to understand that the old man couldn't be himself. So we didn't see the real Satchel Page. He couldn't be as flamboyant and charismatic as he had been in the Negro League because that was so frowned upon, you know, by the major leaguers. Mm-hmm. So he couldn't. He couldn't really be himself. So 
most of the runs that Satchel gave up in that first year in the majors, he gave them up early on because I actually think the old man might have been a little nervous because he couldn't be himself. But then all of a sudden he gets his first start. I think he gets his first start there in Chicago at Comiskey Park. They got 50-plus thousand in. They had to turn away 10,000 people trying to get into the ballpark. And they beat the White Sox, I want to say 5 nothing. Larry Doby drove in a bunch of those runs. Satchel, I don't know, four or five hitter, shut him out. And then they go back to Cleveland, and they had that big ballpark in Cleveland that they packed the house, and he wins it one to nothing. Now, I may have had him switched around. It may have been one to nothing in Chicago, five to nothing in Cleveland. Uh, but irregardless, it, it, it was incredible what he was able to do because once he got his legs underneath him, the stage wasn't too big for him. He had pitched in Kaminsky Park in front of that many people before. Right. He just happened to be in the, in the East-West All-Star game. Right. You know, or what, whatever that showcase might have been. And so I don't. I think if Satchel Page had been in the major leagues in his prime, the Cy Young Award would have likely been the Satchel Page Award. I That's, think he was that good. You took the words right out of my mouth. They, 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 should, rename, they should have renamed the award. And and the thing I love about Satchel is like you know all the great stories about him like calling in the uh, the fielders like I don't I don't need you guys and he'd just strike out the side and <laughs> and, and he wouldn't do that every time I guess you know but you know if the game was in hand or just for fun and I mean how many games must he have pitched thousands not to mention yeah. the the barnstorming plus all the league yeah. games and then getting to the majors in his fifties and. Uh, I, w- I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, um, you know, kind of the different st- going back to like the different style of play, but uh, something called clowning is it was kind of it was part of the game, and then it kind of went away a little bit. But it, uh, the showmanship, I guess, is what it is. But I guess the colloquial term was clowning at the time. Well, and 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 again, I think that's kind of how mainstream looked at it. It was entertainment. Right. When you talk about it from a Negro League's perspective, and people flock to those games to see these guys play pepper, to play shadow ball, uh, to make these spectacular plays that they were making. And again, uh, when when these guys came over to the major leagues, they couldn't play that way anymore. They had to temper that kind of stuff. Now, for those who are listening, there was only one professional clown team that was ever part of the organized Negro Leagues, and that was the Indianapolis Clowns who would have a couple of guys who actually, Danny, dressed in clown attire. Hmm. And they would entertain before, during, and after games. Well, as I tell our guests when they come here to visit the Negro Leagues Museum, today we call them mascots. Yeah, you can't go to the ballpark and not see a mascot running around the place. Well, really, that's where the notion came from. But the rest of those guys who played for the Indianapolis Clowns were serious baseball players. Keep in mind, Henry Aaron's career began with the Indianapolis Clowns. He didn't do the clowning around. He was right. a serious right. baseball player. You know, again, there in Chicago, the great Sam Harrison, who up until just a few years ago had two grandsons playing in the major leagues. Scott Harrison, who I think is still trying to make the White Sox roster this upcoming season. And Jerry Harrison. Jerry Harrison, that's their yeah. Grandfather. Yeah, that's their grandfather. You know, uh, they didn't do that kind of clowning around. Uh, most of that came from films like the Bingo Long Traveling All-Stars and Motor Kings. And, and so if you saw that film, and it is a wildly entertaining film, 
with an all-star African-American cast of actors in James Earl Jones, Richard Pryor, and Billy D. Williams uh, back to the, I'm saying maybe 74, 75 when that film was released. Great film. If you haven't seen it, you should, it's worth a rental. But it was, it really was never intended to portray the actual Negro Leagues. It was based on a fictional novel, but because that was the first Hollywood depiction of the Negro Leagues, people took it as the gospel. And, and mm-hmm. so, my fact, the Negro Leaguers, the Negro Leaguers hated the film. Uh, they really did, but they didn't understand it. The, the film has reached almost like cult-like status now, and, and I think it's one of the most important films uh, relative to that era of the Negro Leagues because it was really the first cinematic portrayal. It was the first thing that we saw through cinema that at least acknowledged that there was a Negro Leagues. You know, even though the way they may have acknowledged it was uh, somewhat skewed. Right. But, you know, but the entertaining aspect of the game was important, man. You know, uh, these fans, that's what they grew to love. They expected to see it. Uh, they wanted so a show. Fighting baseball. Absolutely yeah, they wanted a show. Flip it behind the back. And as you said, those are, <laughs> those are, those are ESPN highlight reel, uh, uh, you know, uh, fodder today. But at, at the time, uh, you, that all came out of, the you know, like you said, playing Pepper in the uh, in the different style of play the uh th- now with uh, satchel page uh, w- would you say that um that his contribution to but i mean obviously is he had a contribution far before he became a major leaguer uh with the the Cleveland Indians but would you say that his contribution to the whole barnstorming circuit he was the number one draw highest paid Negro League player at the time, would you say that, um, you know, in the same way that Jackie Robinson, you know, would you say that Satchel Page is one of those players that made it almost impossible to ignore uh, the fact that black ball players should be in the major leagues? Oh, no question, because as you mentioned, he was such a huge draw. You know, Satchel was one of the most recognized baseball players in the world at that time. He just happened to be playing in the Negro Leagues because everywhere that he went, everybody wanted to see Satchel Page pitch, and that's why he was usually pitching two or three innings almost every single day. And as a result, he was one of the highest-paid baseball players in the world because he was a savvy enough businessman to negotiate a percentage of the gate. And so, but yeah, he, Satchel Page, the late great Buckle Neal always surmised that Satchel Page could have been the first player from the Negro Leagues and the Major Leagues. Uh, and he likely would not have gone through as much as the, of the racial hatred as Jackie did because Satchel Page was a superstar. Everybody knew who Satchel Page was. Uh, he was a phenomenon. You know, but Satchel Page, I think, number one, the owners thought he was too old. Number two, it's too risque to bring a pitcher as that first guy because you can't fail. There's too high an opportunity for a pitcher to fail than an everyday player mm-hmm. to fail. That's interesting. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. And then the other side of it was Satchel was too flamboyant. He was too charismatic. He too closely adhered to what they had the stereotypical depiction of these African-American ballplayers. So, yeah, he, he was far too charismatic. So when you couple all of those things together, they shied away from Satchel. Bill Veck is likely the only guy that would have brought Satchel Page in, uh, as he did in, in 1948. 
But, you know, Sasso had the stuff, man. He did. He had the great stuff. He had the charisma. So he could sell it. And and the late, great Buck O'Neill would always say that the Monarchs were a always a good team. But when Sasso was on the mound, they were a great team. But he also brought, brought out the greatness in everybody else because they wanted to beat it. You know, everybody rose their game, you know, to a higher level mm-hmm. trying to beat Satchel Page. But again, I draw back to the things that I was fortunate enough to hear Buck O'Neill say. And he said, if he had one game to win and any choice of any pitcher from any era, it would be Leroy Satchel Page. Mm-hmm. And he said, you might beat him when he was out there messing around. But when he was locked and loaded, forget about it. Yeah, and he knew he had the stuff. I mean, I just love oh, it. Yeah. I, I would love to see in a Major League Baseball game, you know, somebody like uh, Jake Arietta go up there and call in the fielders and say, I got this, boys. <laughs> you know, n- no need. Go, go, hit the, go, hit, go hit the showers for the ninth. I'm going to finish this off for us. Oh, <laughs> you know, I mean. Or, or, or as he did in, in the legendary story that Buck O'Neill told in the Ken Burns documentary, now, they're playing in the 1942 Negro League World Series, and the story has it that Satchel gives up a two-out triple in the, uh, two, in, the, in, the, in the game, and the Monarchs are winning the game 42 against the Pittsburgh Crawfords. No, I'm sorry, the Homestead Grays, 1942 Negro League World Series. Satchel gives up a two-out triple to a guy named Jerry Benjamin who uh, – Threw him a fastball. He swung, hit the ball down the third base line. He hit the bag, ricochets down the left field line. It's fair. Benjamin could run pretty good, gets a stand-up triple. Uh, Satchel calls time. And, of course, his nickname for the legendary Buck O'Neill was Nancy. And he says, Nancy, you know what I'm fixing to do? Buck says, yes, Satchel, get ready to get this guy out so we can go back to the hotel. He says, no, Nancy, I'm going to walk Howard Easterly. I'm going to walk Buck Leonard, and I'm going to pitch to Josh Gibson. Now, Buck says, Satchel, don't be facetious. He says, well, you can call it what you want to, but that's what I'm going to do. Well, Buck says he calls time. Now he motions for the Monarchs manager, a guy named Frank Duncan, great manager, uh, to come out of, the, out of the dugout. He says, Skipper, listen to what this fool says he's fixing to do. He, well, Satchel told him what he was going to do. Frank Duncan looks around the ballpark, got full field. They got it field to capacity. He says, well, Buck, if that's what Satchel wants to do, let him do it. Buck said, okay, skip this your game. Buck goes back to first base. Satchel gets on the mound. Now, Satchel has pinpoint control. He rarely walks anyone. He walks Howard easily on four straight pitches. There's a murmur going around the stadium. He walks Buck Leonard on four straight pitches. Now everybody knows what's going down. So Buck says Satchel calls time again. This time he motions for the Monarchs uh, trainer Julius Floyd to come out to out of the book, out of the dugout, and he says Floyd comes out wearing a doctor smock, <laughs> and he has a glass. And he drops something in the glass, and the glass starts to fizz. And Buck surmises that it was an alcohol. And he brings it out, and he hands hands the glass to Satchel. Satchel drinks it down, and he lets out a belch. Now he's ready. (laughs) Buck Buck says, Josh is standing in the batting circle with that big bat of his. It looked like it's six feet long. Says it's going down right now. Well, as Josh is coming to the plate, 
Stafford is talking to him. Now, Josh, you know I always thought you were the greatest hitter in the world, and I know I'm the greatest pitcher in the world, and one day we get a chance to settle it, and today is the day. Josh was a very soft-spoken, gentle giant of a man. Come on, Satchel, throw the ball. He says, Josh, I'm going to throw you three fastballs. I'm going to throw you this first fastball about belt high, boom. 95-mile-an-hour fastball, cross strike one. Says, Josh, never move the bat. He says, now, Josh, I'm going to throw you another fastball, but it's going to be faster than that other fastball. <laughs> boom, 99-mile-an-hour fastball, cross strike two. Josh, never moves the bat. He says, now, Josh, I got you 0-2. Now, mind you, Danny, in the, in the Negro Leagues, when they got you 0-2, they were going to brush you back off the plate. They were going to knock you down. Mm-hmm. But Satchel says to Josh, he says, I ain't going to throw in a smoke at your yoke. I'm going to throw a pee at your knee. 100-mile-an-hour <laughs> fastball, call strike three. Buck says Gibson slammed the bat down in disgust. Satchel, who stood about six foot four, six foot five, Buck says he stretched out. He looked like he was seven feet tall. He says, Nancy, <laughs> nobody, nobody hit Satchel Page's fastball. Honestly, God's truth. Negro League World Series, walked the bases loaded to face the most feared <laughs> hit in the game, struck him out on three pitches after telling him what he was going to throw him. Only Satchel Page. Because, quite frankly, had Josh beat Satchel, Satchel would have been okay with it. Because Buck says the very next year they're playing in Yankee Stadium. And he says, Satchel tried to get a fastball past Gibson. He said, Josh hit it so hard. You know how the pitcher goes to his follow-through? Yeah. That Satchel never got a chance to come up. The ball went right over the top of his cap into <laughs> Monument Garden at Yankee Stadium. And, and as Josh is circling the bases, Satchel's still down there. He didn't come up. He just looked at Josh. Josh circling the bases. He's still down. And he looks over at first base. He says, Nancy. A fella could get killed out here. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's what, I mean. I, the the thing that really frustrates me as like listening to these stories is that they they are just part of this one part of history of the the Negro League baseball, and they're not well known stories uh, around all of baseball. You know, it's like it it. I, I know that it. For me, like when I when I was growing up in the '80s and '70s, like even Jackie Robinson was a distant memory in many yeah. in many cases. I, we never saw him play. My father saw him play, but I never did. And uh, a lot of you know, many people say that he was the greatest. People say that Satchel Paige was the greatest, and you know, at least that we have people who are still alive who remember these guys. And like they just don't make them like that anymore, do they? No, they don't. They yeah. don't. The characters are not as colorful as they were, no pun intended. You know, you don't have the, the great nicknames like you did back then. And, of course, if, you know, you played in Negro Leagues and you didn't have a great nickname, you probably weren't any good. Right, exactly. You know, and, and, yeah, and so you don't see that as much um, because the game has changed to, from that extent. And the young athletes have so many other options now, and they don't stay around the game like the guys did, so you don't have – the long bus rides and those kinds of things where you really had nothing else to do but play cards and that kind of thing and talk baseball. And, and so those dynamics have changed. Not only wrong, but the young kids that play this game today, they love the game just as much as the guys loved it back then. And, and they make a great living doing so. But I think one of the things that you don't see, number one, is 
the level of athleticism that was there in those days, both the white and black and Hispanic athletes, uh, that's an era where the athletes, comparably, I don't think were as good as the athletes uh, are, you know, then as they are now. You know, I'm going to say those athletes back in the Negro Leagues, back in the Major Leagues, then because Major League Baseball, Negro Leagues Baseball were getting the absolute best athlete. You know, and, mm-hmm. and you don't get that anymore. You know, you really don't. You Every now and then we'll see a great athlete make his way down to play baseball. Uh, but the guys, you know. Like a Bo Jackson. And you, yeah, you don't see a Bo Jackson coming down the pipeline, you know, uh, that often. Or Dave Winfield, who was drafted in the Major League NFL, NBA, and ABA. Mm-hmm. You know, you just don't see those kinds of athletes, and they were commonplace in the Negro League. These guys could have played anything. Baseball was the only thing that they could get paid for from a sports standpoint, from a uh, particular team sports standpoint, unless you were going to be a prize fighter. And, and so, you know, that degree of, of athlete that was being drawn to baseball can now go to basketball, can go to football, go on to soccer. So, you know, I'm not sure baseball gets the great athlete like it used to back in the day. That's a really good point. And uh, I guess also like kind of talking about today or or even the recent history is like what it, what do you think of like there's been a lot of talk in the last few years about how that the major leagues aren't attracting the same amount of not not just like you said athletes but also just kind of black ball players in general um yeah. and that and that you know there's all this well the dominicans are taking over the jobs or whatever i've heard that before um but uh, one of our listeners at um i'm trying to find this specific question but it's uh, do you think that the mlb is doing enough to attract young african americans to the sport and then the other part of that question is um what do you think of the racial climate at, over the last let's say 25 years within baseball well, and if you can you know, and, comment on that. Yeah, and, 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 you know, obviously the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum joins Major League Baseball and the others who have identified and are addressing and now trying to come up with a solution for why the numbers have diminished so greatly uh, relative to African-American participation. There are a lot of black folks playing baseball. They speak Spanish. But as it relates to African-American participation, those numbers have dwindled greatly from, you know, the 70s to now. But baseball, I think, has done a tremendous job in, number one, the realization that this is a, a growing problem, and then looking at programs and options to help try to remedy this. You know, we in Kansas City are excited because, we have been designated city number seven for a Major League Baseball Urban Youth Academy, which is going to be built right behind the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. How cool is that? First of all of those urban academies, baseball academies, to actually have a Negro Leagues Baseball Museum attached to it. So now as more and more young kids are being introduced, particularly urban kids, are being introduced to the game of baseball, they grow in the game of baseball, they will also learn the heritage of the game of baseball. They have a chance to come here and see people who look just like them 
who played this game as well as anyone ever played this game. But Danny not only played the game, they fulfilled every aspect of a baseball business operation. So you had black owners, you had black traveling secretaries, black team physicians, black coaches, black managers, you know, so every aspect of a baseball business was being operated there in the Negro Leagues. So we not only want kids to dream of playing baseball, we want them to dream of fulfilling some of these other opportunities that mm-hmm. come with our, you know, but it all starts with introducing them to the sport and help, and helping them love the sport as well. You know, I want them to think about running the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum at some point in time. I hope they give me a little, a little bit more time here at the time, <laughs> but, you know, we want them to understand that those opportunities exist and, and the joys that come along with playing a game that is one of the most difficult games to play. Baseball is not an easy sport to play, although it is a sport that we all think we can play because right. your physical stature doesn't dictate whether you can play this game. But, you know, you fail more time than you succeed in a sport, and out of all the major sports, you know, none of them are you on offense and you don't have the ball. That's why right. the sport is so tough to play. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but as, again, and I draw back to Buck O'Neill so often because he was just he was he was just such an amazing person. He said, "Well, you know, you could have two eighty-year-old men sitting on the couch watching a baseball game, and a guy hits a pop fly, and they let it fall between them. And what's the first words that come out of their mouth? Oh, I could have caught that." You know, but that's baseball. That's baseball. Yeah. But you know, if if if, if Michael Jordan missed the dunk, everybody ain't saying I could have done that because we all can't. Do yeah, that. exactly. You know, and, and again, but it just speaks to how baseball ingratiates us in ways in which no other sport does. Uh, and so we want to create a complete baseball structure for our kids to be introduced to this game, to enjoy this game, to grow in this game. If they become future Major League Baseball players, then that's great. But what we don't want to have happen is that kids who want to play this game never have an opportunity to do so. It is important that we create the opportunities. Now, if they decide they don't like it, then they're well within their rights. But, again, we don't want them to be limited by having no place to play, by not having equipment, which will allow them to play. And, you know, the sad reality of our sport is that it was a game that used to be a blue-collar sport. Well, it is not that any longer. It is a country club sport when we look at the economics of this sport. Right. And it, it prices a lot of people out. And so we've got to make sure that uh, these urban kids have every opportunity if they so desire to play our sport. Well, a lot of time it's about just having a field. Um, I mean, I, I, I lived in New York City for many years, and I currently live in Chicago. There were baseball fields around, but, you know, a lot of times you had to pay to be on them. Um, yep. You have to, you know, have a a league to to use them. Um, the ones that aren't uh, that anybody can use aren't in the best physical condition. <laughs> you know, uh, big puddles, holes. Uh, I mean, I even played a, a field as a kid that had uh, gopher holes all over the outfield. I <laughs> went after I used to catch. I they'd send me out to the outfield, and I was running for a ball that ended up with my shoe sticking up in a, one of the gopher holes, and me with no shoe on. But um, but yeah, I think that's a lot of it, and it's just the, having the opportunities to even. I mean, down in the Dominican Republic, they're hitting a bottle cap with a broomstick. 
Well, yeah, yeah, and and you know, but it also speaks again that in this country the opportunities have grown. You know, so you know you're not dependent on baseball to be that way out as as there was once upon a time. You know, in the Dominican, they are still so passionate about their sport, and whatever equipment is is available to them, they utilize with that dream of playing professional baseball at some point in time. But you know, we have kids now; they they dream of playing professional basketball or professional football, you know, professional soccer. There are so many other options that are available to them, and sad to say, those days that you were referring to, those days of sandlot baseball. They're gone. Yeah. You know, uh, I grew up playing sandlot baseball, and it didn't matter if we had nine kids on each team. We just divided the number of kids that we had, and we played. And we played until they made us come in, right. you know, uh, when it was getting dark. and You, you could know, barely see the ball. <laughs> yeah, you could barely see it. And we're still out there trying to get that last swing in. And, you know, I was Hank Aaron, or I was Willie Mays, or whomever it was at that point in time, and you wanted to emulate them and be like them and um, – you know, those days are over now. If it's not organized, then the kids won't have an opportunity to play. Right. And, and so, yeah, so it, when it's organized, it gets to be very, very expensive. Um, I, I got a couple more questions. We're running a little long here. I hope I'm not taking up your whole <laughs> afternoon. I mean, but, it, it, you know, this is also fascinating, and I know that the listeners of this show are going to be fascinated by everything you've had to say. But if you don't mind, uh, could I get to a couple more questions from some of our listeners? Sure, and, absolutely. Cool. Um, another one of my podcast hosts, Michael, um, has a question about uh, at, that right after integration that there was some thought, and I don't even know about this. I guess he looked it up. There was some thought to having a Negro minor league for the major league teams. And uh-huh. if you think that would have helped or hindered how fast black players were given chances with major league teams, and the reason he says he asks is because he was wondering if it would have allowed more black players to showcase their talents in that setting, or if a black minor league system would have just reinforced segregation. Well, you know, what happened was, and the dynamics is so interesting. We'll go back, and as a matter of fact, we're building a brand new exhibit that we will introduce in May of 2016 called Barrier Breakers. And Danny, the exhibit will look at the complete integration of the game, which took place over a course of 12 years from 1947 uh, when Jackie joins the Brooklyn Dodgers to 1959 when Boston becomes the last team to integrate when they sign Elijah Pumpsy Green. So this thing took 12 years before it played out. I think a lot of people just believe that when Jackie breaks color barrier, that the it's all over, yeah. from black folks did. Yeah, yeah, it's ran on into the to the major leagues. But this was a very slow, meticulous process. But what happened was, and, and which is why the Negro leagues were able to continue to do business over that time span. So the Negro leagues didn't cease operations until 1960, because by that time the best young black stars had either moved into the major leagues or into the major leagues minor league system. So the major leagues didn't need the Negro leagues to be the minor league system as they had over that time span, because mm-hmm. they had really siphoned most of their players over that initial phase of integration from the Negro leagues. The more majority of those players who broke their respective team's color barriers or from 47 to 59 were former Negro League stars. But then once they do that, the minor leagues are now open for them to recruit black players to go in. And they didn't really need the Negro Leagues to be that feeder system for them. And what happened was it put the older baseball player in a quandary 
The Negro League didn't want them because they couldn't sell them to the Major League, and the Major League didn't want them because they were too old. And so, you know, those those guys would then have to either go back to Canada or to Latin America if they were going to resume their playing careers. But it was an interesting dynamic. But the idea of a Negro League minor league really never came into being because the major leagues already had an established minor league system. And so they could just basically follow those players into the minor leagues and with the, you know, the idea of bringing them up to the major leagues at, at some point in time. And, you know, as we will relate in this exhibition, man, those guys who toiled in the minor leagues, it was rough. You know, oh, yeah. as much they had to go through in the major leagues, it was three, fourfold in the minor leagues because they were playing these small, primarily southern towns, and, man, they caught hell. Mm. Uh, those guys who were able to advance through those sets of circumstances and make it in to the major leagues and be successful, uh, it had everything to do with their intestinal fortitude as much as it had to do with their talent. Because uh, I think a lot of talented guys left the Negro Leagues and didn't make it in the major leagues, but it had nothing to do with their talent. It had everything to do with their inability to adjust to a social system where the people there didn't want you to be there. Right. And, and there was also a great fear that you were about to take somebody's job. You were about to take a white player's job. And so even when Jackie came up, he took somebody's job. So the other guys were looking over their shoulder, wondering what I meant. So, you know, they, it ain't like you being welcomed with open arms when you came <laughs> up. <laughs> well, and, and they even talk about that. I don't know if you've ever read the book, The Glory of Their Times, which is um, – it talks about the uh, – it's it's mostly the early major leaguers, guys like Rube Waddell and, and uh, uh, you know, turn-of-the-century ball players, And, you know, even a veteran wouldn't even ever help a rookie oh, for no. the same reason. And so now you've got the racial dynamic on top of it, not just you're, not just like, is this youngster going to take my job? But, you know, there's a whole new talent pool now opened up. And if if you're hitting 220, and they're expecting you to hit 275, and they got some guy knocking on the door who just happens to be black, yeah, I, I think you're probably wondering. Um, oh yeah, oh yeah, you know, and, and 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 that was a big part of this thing. It was one of the reasons that it took so long to integrate the game because the idea of these black players taking jobs away from white players didn't fit very well, and it created a natural fear level. But what I've always said is that the superstar major leaguer wasn't concerned about integration. You know, Ted Williams wasn't concerned about integration because Ted Williams could play. And what we know, and it still rings true today, great athletes appreciate other great athletes. Mm -hmm. And the only way to measure how good you are is by playing with and against the very best. And so, you know, that, but, you know, fear had as much to do with why it took so long to integrate our sport as anything. You had certainly the social conditions of our time, and then you had so many guys who have been indoctrinated to a Jim Crow way of thinking. Uh, so that was always going to be difficult for them to move away from that. But what we saw happen when Jackie came up, and, and was part of the reason that Jackie was the right guy, because Jackie defied those stereotypical depictions. Jackie was soft-spoken. He was college-educated, uh, disciplined, all those things. War hero. Exactly. All those things that they said the African-American athlete wasn't, Jackie was. Mm -hmm. and, and so all of a sudden, now you see him every day 
And you're seeing him and you're saying, well, he's not like what, what I heard he was like, you know? And, and that's why sports have been such a wonderful barrier breaker in our society. Uh, because again, it, it puts us in a light where we get to see firsthand as opposed to having say, well, you know, such and such told me that they were this way. And, and so, and the rules in sports are consistent. You know, it's three strikes, you're out. Yeah, Four no matter what color you are, yeah. No matter what color you are. You know, uh, you know, 400 feet is 400 feet, no matter what color you are. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, so it didn't, they didn't make the wall 450 when black players came up. Right. You know, and, and 350 when the white players came up. It was always, though it's been that one place in our society where the playing fields are more times level than in other aspects of, of society. And would you call that like um, what you said earlier about how lots of people thought that, you know, just the moment Jackie Robinson came up, then all of a sudden there was an automatic, uh, you know, um, I guess, flood of uh, African-American players that came into the major leagues. Uh, Would you say that's a huge misconception that people have, or are there other misconceptions that people have about Jackie Robinson? Oh, yeah, absolutely, because, again, most people don't realize that it took 12 years before every major league team had at least one black baseball player because the assumption is Robinson comes over and then this must just open up everything. But this was a very slow, meticulous process. Hence, the Los Angeles, well, Los Angeles Dodgers, the Brooklyn Dodgers, by 1953, probably had at least five or six black baseball players on that team when half of the major leagues had yet to integrate. Branch Rickey was very aggressive signing black baseball players. You know, the National League was far more aggressive signing black baseball players. The American League really was very slow. Boston didn't want a black baseball player. Boston ultimately would sign a black baseball player because I think they almost felt pressured to sign a black baseball hmm. player because now it's 1959 and every other team has one except you, you know. And so, <laughs> well, Larry <laughs> Doby, at that time. Larry yeah. Doby was the first American League in the American League, and, yeah. and then Satchel Paige came up right after him on on the Cleveland I Indians came a year as well. Later. Absolutely. And uh, I don't think a lot of people know, and this is a Cubs podcast that we're talking on, so I don't think a lot of people know that Ernie Banks, Mr. Cub, was the first uh, African-American Chicago Cub. I don't yes, think, he I don't, was. I don't, and and, and he barely beats his former teammate, Gene Baker. Gene Baker could have been the first, but Gene Baker got hurt. Gene Baker had left the Monarchs to come to the Cubs as well. But Gene gets hurt, Ernie takes the field, I don't know, maybe a day or so before Gene Baker does. And, of course, Banks and Baker form that, form the major's first double play combination there mm-hmm. in Chicago, all-black double play combination, Gene, the great Gene Baker and, and, and Ernie Banks, both having played for the Kansas City Monarchs, both having played for Buck O'Neill. Yeah, I don't, I don't think you can really underestimate what Buck O'Neill did for the or that period of time of integration, almost at, you know, like being a manager, a scout, uh, you know, obviously it spotted all the best talent and made sure that they saw it through. It's almost like, I mean, his playing days were over at that point, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they were long behind them by that time. 
and uh, but Buck was such a great mentor. And that's why I say he was like a father figure, even though the Cubs would eventually trade Lou to St. Louis, and, and Buck would be one of the last to sign off on that deal uh, because he knew Lou would get an opportunity to play in St. Louis. And Lou was struggling a little bit there in Chicago, and as fate would have it, Lou would go on to become a Hall of Famer. But Lou Brock, um, and please keep him in your thoughts and prayers because he just had here recently his left leg amputated as a result of the complications of diabetes. Um, Lou Brock will tell you that Buck O'Neill was his, was his father, you know, was a surrogate father to him. Billy Williams will say the same thing. All those guys had that same feeling, and, and they loved Buck O'Neill, and he loved them, and he took care of them, he guided them, and as a result, they went on to have great Major League Baseball careers. Yeah, well, I I think Lou Brock, even with one leg, is probably still faster than I am. <laughs> <laughs> He's faster than most, even at age 75, yeah. 76. <laughs> yeah, it... Um, it, it, yeah, he could probably still, uh, hit the ball better than I could too. Um, but, uh, we'll, we'll wrap this up. I got, I got one more, more question from, um, uh, 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 it's actually came through Twitter. It's, uh, Robert, Rob C O one thirty. Um, he asked if he wants to know your most inspirational story for, that you've heard from ball players in your career as the president of the Negro leagues museum. If you could wow. even pinpoint one, that's uh, I mean, <laughs> I, you know, interesting enough, my most inspirational story really occurs off the field, and and, and I take you back to February twenty seventh, two thousand six, when Buck O'Neill was up for induction into the National Baseball Hall of Fame, and to be quite frankly, Danny, we most of the baseball world thought it was a shoe in that Buck was going to get in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. Um, somehow or another, it did not happen. He missed by what we now know to be one vote. And Buck O'Neill and I left home that morning. We were going to fly to Tampa where there would be a press conference introducing those Negro League players who got in the Hall of Fame. Of course, there were only two on the list of four considerations that were still alive, Buck O'Neill and the late great Minnie Minoso. Uh, and so we were going to fly to Tampa that afternoon after the announcement. He was going to participate in a press conference the very next day, and unfortunately it did not happen. But here at the Negro Leagues Museum, we had, oh, I don't know, well over 300 people who had gathered on what we call the Field of Legends downstairs uh, in the gallery where these life-size statues of Negro League greats who represent Negro Leaguers in the Hall of, Field, Hall of Fame are. And, and so... Once we got the news, Buck came down and, for lack of a better term, delivered one of the most amazing concession speeches that I'd ever heard. And while the world was so angry that he didn't get in, uh, he basically implored all of us not to be angry, not to be bitter, not to express any ill will toward anyone who had anything to do with that decision. He says, I had an opportunity, and in this great country of ours, that's all you can ever ask. They didn't think old Buck was good enough. We've got to live with that. But if I'm a Hall of Famer in your eyes, that's all that matters to me. Just keep on loving old Buck. And then he would push aside his own disappointment 
of not getting in the Hall of Fame, go to Cooperstown that summer, speak on behalf of 17 Negro League players, all of them dead. They didn't have a voice. And what I still say was one of the most selfless acts in American sports history. A little over two months later, he passed away himself. You know, it, it was just, wow. for me personally and professionally, it was one of the most disappointing days ever, but it was also one of the most inspirational days as I watched how Buck O'Neill handled disappointment. He taught us all a great lesson on how to handle disappointment. And for me, that day will stay with me for the rest of my natural life uh, to have been there to witness it, you know, to see wow. how a man handles being a man when things don't go your way. And I think there was something for all of us to draw from having, you know, seen how he handled that whole set of circumstances when the world was saying, this should have been your Hall of Fame speech. He was there speaking on behalf of those who didn't have a voice. Uh, I I have um, goosebumps on my arms <laughs> just hearing. <laughs> I mean, honestly, like when you were telling this story and I, I thought about him going down there and just kind of picturing that in my mind's eye of him giving that speech of, of hope and strength in the face of, I yes. mean, he got screwed over for lack of a better term <laughs> and continues to be screwed over, I might add. So, I mean, hope, hopefully that that's made right sometime soon. Uh, you know, you can only hope that that's uh, wow. That, that is, I mean, I'm kind of, I'm a little speechless because I mean, I, I can very easily picture that happening, like seeing him interviewed in the past and just kind of who you knew him to be as a person. I mean, I, I don't know if there's too many among us that have the kind of strength to be able to do what he did in that, in that moment, you know? No. No, I, I, I don't either, and I think that's why it was so inspirational. That's why we were all so moved. You know, I think that's why the, the national media, uh, international media, all, you know, basically lifted him up because I think his star rose that much higher by the way he handled that situation. Yeah. People already had great adoration for Buck O'Neill, but if it was possible, I think he grew in the eyes of many just simply by the way he handled that disappointment. And I can tell you now, the moral majority of us could not have handled that the way that he did, and the moral majority of us would not have gone to the Hall of Fame to speak on behalf of those who had gotten in. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so it was an amazing display of strength of character, and it was one of the most selfless things I've ever seen done in the world of sports. Well, I've, I, for one, after reading... Um, after speaking with you, after reading only the ball was white, and before my knowledge of uh, black baseball was pretty much um, Satchel Paige and Josh Gibson, uh, you know, I can say that over the last few months, my mind has been blown, and I can't really, I can't wait to get to Kansas City. I wish the Cubs were coming down there this year, because uh, because I'd I'd come down. Um, we I, and unfortunately we're playing the West this year, and Kansas City came and visited us at Wrigley this yes, year. Yes. But matter of fact, we brought a what we called a barnstorming memory of Ernie Banks. So we brought a group of fans from Kansas City on a bus ride to remember the late great Ernie Banks oh, how when cool. the Royals played there at Wrigley. I, it was I hope it wasn't the game that got rained out. No, it was the next day. It was just okay. cold, man. It, ooh, it was cold. 
<laughs> yeah, it, yeah, that was uh, the Sunday, and uh, yeah, well, don't you know it stays cold till uh, mid-August here in <laughs> next to Lake Michigan? If that wind's blowing in, yeah, you're kind of you're in for it. You know, it's funny when you see people come to Wrigley. You know, even from the suburbs, they'll come in in shorts and a tank top, and they're ready to watch a ball game. And I'll be in a coat with gloves in my pocket just in case, because I know what I'm I I know what to expect at Wrigley Field, but people don't. And yeah, they. I think they do that on purpose. Just to make they make it look nice on TV so they can sell the fifty dollar blanket from the gift shop. <laughs> to and well, you got to buy a Cubs blanket. They sold a bunch of blankets to us that day. Yeah, and, you know, I had coat and glove on too, and I was still cold. Yeah. Like, oh no, my goodness. It is no joke. Well, you're you're welcome anytime in Chicago. Uh, you know, the love to meet you in person. Hopefully, it's down. At the museum, where I you you can show me around and uh, and I just I want to encourage everybody that's listening to this to if you're anywhere in the Kansas City area, I guess uh, they, it's open seven days a week. You you have any we're, days we're you're closed? In the summertime, we're open seven during baseball season. We're open seven days a week. Primarily, our, our gallery hours are Tuesday through Saturday, nine to six. And then Sundays, noon to six. But once baseball season rolls around, we get so many guests coming down. And on a Monday, we just started opening up on Mondays as well. And so pretty much year-round, except for holidays, because we're inside of a city building that's owned by the city. And so most holidays were closed. But, um, you know, we encourage everybody, if you can, if, you're, if your travels bring you to Kansas City, Come and visit the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, and and you've you got a really cool time. gift shop. I, the the baseball cap offers you got buy oh, one, yeah. buy one yeah. get one fifty percent off right now. Uh, yeah, yeah. And it, let me ask: Is the Buck O'Neill? I know he's well past a hundred years old at this point, but is uh, the Buck O'Neill hundred for hundredth still going? That still you can get still going, still going, There's still room on the wall. Yes, yeah, so you room on the wall. So as long as we have room on the wall, people interested in in getting a permanent place on the wall for the donation of a hundred dollars in memory of Buck. At that time, we were we were creating what we call the All Century Team for Buck O'Neill, and we had an overwhelming response. But we still have room on the wall. And again, it's rare that a hundred dollars buys you perpetuity. But in this case, you can make a hundred dollar donation, and your ball will be permanently affixed to the outfield wall at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in memory of Buck O'Neill and in support of his museum. And that opportunity still exists. That's that's awesome. I mean, there's – and uh, the website is um, nlbm.com. Uh-huh, com. And, uh, and definitely look you up when you get there. <laughs> yes, by all means. Yeah. Well, I'm here all the time. Good. So, you know, that's part of the favorite part of my job is get down into the gallery and meet people and, you know, get their reaction to what we're doing and, and their thoughts and sharing stories and so forth. And then also, for those of you who are on Twitter, please follow me at NLBM Prez. That's N-L-B-M-P-R-E-Z. Yeah, do that, everybody who's listening. Um, <laughs> Bob, Bob. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on the Sun Ranto show. I know that everybody that listens to this is uh, going to get an, an education, and um, it's it's a it's a shameful part of American history uh, that should never have existed. But it's uh, but like you said right at the top, it's also a, a very American story of triumph over yeah. adversity. And I yeah. think that uh, to me, because I get angry. 
when I think about it. And um, when I talk to you, I don't. I'm not as angry. I'm, I'm, I'm more celebratory about just the amazing humans that have played baseball, and I just I just want to celebrate the legacy of of and the shoulders of the Giants that literally the Giants because every team was pretty much called the Giants in the the Negro <laughs> leagues, especially the Chicago American Giants, probably the the best one of the best teams the ever. Greatest of all the Giant teams, yeah, yeah of absolutely. all the Giants teams. But it, it seemed like they're the Cuban Giants, the Cuban X Giants. I, I wrote them down once. There was like fifty different teams called Lots the Giants. Lots of Giant teams, but uh, yeah. definitely the ball players yeah. of today. Um, white, black, Hispanic, any race, it doesn't matter, um, definitely have a lot to owe to the shoulders of the Giants they're standing on from the Negro Leagues at the time. And I know I personally appreciate you keeping that legacy and hope alive and, um, you know, spit and the positive, the positivity you bring to what could otherwise be kind of a sore subject. Yeah. Well, you know, and I think for me, a lot of that was, being around Buck O'Neill, you know, because, you know, while others chose to see the glass half empty, he saw the glass as being half full. And, uh, you know, it was never woe is mine in his eyes. You know, they had a great time playing a game that they loved. They made a great living playing the game that they loved. And while the conditions and circumstances that created the Negro Leagues were not ideal, uh, you couldn't take away from them the joy that they had from playing our, our pastime. And I think that's what we try to do with this story. You know, it's not a sad, somber story. No. It really isn't. It, it's a celebration. It's a celebration of the power of the human spirit to really overcome, you know, to persevere and prevail. And, and again, that's why so many people, when they come here, they are just blown away by this experience. Yeah. Well, I can't wait to be blown away and I can't meet, wait to meet you in person. And uh, I will definitely I mean, I don't really have any business in Kansas City other than a possible baseball game. But now I've got a whole other reason to go to KC. And I mean, oh, man, I we, just barbecue. I could go eat the no, barbecue. Absolutely. I was about to say, we hope to see you out in KC. Yeah. Uh, you know, for, for this experience and the best barbecue in the world. <laughs> I, I believe you. I, I believe you. I, I, I won't. I won't. Uh, hopefully, we don't have any Memphis listeners that will. Uh, <laughs> is it, you might hear from them. <laughs> no, I, I like the KC style. A little bit of the sweet, smoky kind of flavor. Uh -huh. Yeah, that's that's my that's my jam right there. So. <laughs> Well, I appreciate well, we you coming. To you soon. Yeah, heck yeah. And uh, thanks for coming on the show, Bob. Um, ladies and gentlemen, Bob Kendrick, uh, go visit him at the Negro League Museum in Kansas City, Missouri. And uh, thanks for coming on the show. Okay, Danny, man. My pleasure. Okay. Thanks, Bob. Have a great right. day. Okay. Bye right. now. Bye bye. Cubby blue blood flowing through our veins. Sitting in the bleachers in the rain. We've shed a million tears and drank as many old-style beers out at the game. Let's go, Cubby Sun Rento, Sun Rento, Sun Rento and the lovable Lucy. Sun Rento, Sun Rento, Sun Rento and the lovable Lucy.
Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact.